If you would, turn your, your Bibles to Revelation 5, which seems like a weird passage, but work with me. As I believe this passage embodies both of these aspects, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, but He's also the Lamb who was slain, the King of the world who dies for the sake of the world. And commentators say that Revelation 5 is the passage you have to understand to, to understand everything, to understand the book of Revelation. This is the key, this passage. Um, and it's like that movie Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, where if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> At the end of the movie, we find out, we follow Bruce Willis through the whole movie, we find out he's dead. And so it makes sense on why he's having communication issues in his marriage, why he's having other issues is because he's not alive. And when you understand that, you go back and read the whole movie differently. You see the whole movie differently. That's the key. That's Revelation 5 for us. And I think this is the key for us to help us understand Palm Sunday. So, context for John 4, and then we'll rise and read the text. John wrote Revelation. He's taken up into the throne room of heaven where there's someone sitting on the throne, and surrounding the throne is 24 other thrones where the elders have their seats. There's seven burning torches. There's four living creatures, a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. They've got all these wings and a myriad of eyes. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. They are worshiping the one on the throne. Like, that's their job, is to worship. And all the elders take their crowns of gold and silver embedded with precious jewels and emeralds, and they cast them at the feet, scatter them, before the throne of the one who's sitting there. And in the hand of the one sitting on the throne is a scroll, sealed with seven seals. So with that, would you please rise and give your attention to God's Word. And as we read it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why? Nobody can open it except Jesus. Why is Jesus worthy to open the scroll? What is it about Jesus? Why is He worthy? With that, please give your attention to the good news of a God who is worthy of our worship this Palm Sunday morning. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. In heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that is John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's Word. It is absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for this passage. Open our hearts and minds to receive it with joy, with freshness, uh, as we honor You this Palm Sunday. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. What do you worship? What do you worship? That's the question of this passage. What do you worship? Imagine if someone followed you around for a year, besides the fact that that's kind of creepy, um, and he saw everything you did. What would he say that you worshipped? What would he say that you worshipped? Novelist and essayist uh, David Foster Wallace, himself an atheist, gave a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005, and listen what he says about worship. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship, again, he's an atheist, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they were what you, where you find real meaning in life, then you will never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and your beauty, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million small deaths before your life's end. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect as being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, here's the thing. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. Unconscious. They are default settings. Everybody worships. In many ways, Revelation 5 is saying the same thing. Everybody worships. And the thing you worship is going to shape what kind of person you are and your witness to this world. C.S. Lewis said that you really know you begin to worship something when you begin to enjoy it. That you're really enjoying something, you're going to start praising it, worshiping it, tell your buddies about it. And so if those creepy people follow you around for a year, what would they say that you worship? What's the thing you enjoy most? What's the thing you talk about the most, you think about the most? And I bet many of us here would say, well, at times I seem to worship money, security. Uh, I worship food. Um, I worship uh, the uh, approval of my friends and colleagues. You worship work, our children, our parenting, or power. We all have things we worship. But you see, as God's people, we have to fight these competing things, fighting for our worship. I mean, we just entered this worship scene in Revelation 5. And it unveiled for us what's going to happen. It is this scene of who is truly worthy of our worship. You see, the word worship originally comes in English from the word worship. That is to say, we sing and praise and worship something that is of ultimate worth. So this passage teaches us that Jesus is the one who is worshipped, and he's, and he's worthy of it. I, we're going to look at that for the next few moments. Because at the very end of verse 14, if we noticed, the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Because they were looking at Jesus, and they were like, he's worthy of our worship. So there's two things about Jesus who's worthy of our worship. First is this, Jesus is worthy of our worship because he reigns as a lion. He reigns as a lion. If you read verses 2 and 4, you see the strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's going to open these scrolls? We've got to break these seals. And no one was found. They looked everywhere. They couldn't find anyone. 
Nobody can open it. And John begins to weep because these scrolls reveal who God is and his saving purposes for the world. And if nobody can open him, it's not going to happen. We're not going to find out. He's not going to do it. They can't be accomplished until he's open. And so John is weeping. You see, scrolls back then would uh, be sealed with wax, hot wax, and then it would have the imprint or the insignia of the master or owner of the scroll. So normally it was like a ring of a king. And it has seven, so you imagine a scroll, seven wax dots, hot, and then the, a seal on it. And that meant that that scroll belonged to that person. And nobody could open it unless he said it was okay. And if you saw the wax open and it wasn't him, and he didn't give you permission, that was not going to be good news. But here's the good news in verse 5. You can imagine John hovered over, his back and his stomach throbbing up and down, tears streaming down his face because no one is going to open the scroll. And this strong angel comes and grabs him by the shoulder with a handkerchief and says, John, weep no more. How beautiful are those words? This is what we all are longing for. And he's saying, somebody has opened the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he can open the scroll. And it's reminding us of Genesis 49, where Jacob prophesied that a lion, from, he's gonna, Judah, is going to be like a lion. And now we see that Jesus is that lion. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, Jesus is this lion who is reigning over this world in control. And so there's two things about Jesus reigning as a lion. One is that he's in control. I mean, look, here's the deal. God made this world. That's the claim of the Bible, that he's king. This is his world. And Genesis 1 and 2 has this whole regal air to it. This king makes this world, and then he calls you and me to be kings and queens in it, to rule representing him, to spread his kingdom, to exercise dominion, to fill this whole world with his glory. But look, we, we didn't want to do that, did we? We wanted to be our own kings and queens of our own kingdoms. So we sinned. We wanted to reign without God. But look, God did not lose control when that happened. This is still his world. In the Old Testament and in the Bible, we see that God uses our sin and our failures. And his plan doesn't change. He's still going to fill this world with his glory, with his people worshiping him. It just means now it has to be accomplished through pain, through suffering. I mean, he was in control when he sent the flood on a violent world. And he was in control when Egypt was enslaved by God's people, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes in the time of the judges, when Jeroboam made golden calves, and so dividing God's people into two nations, and when Judah eventually joined their northern brothers and sisters in idolatry. God was in control when he sent his people into exile and when he brought them back again. And God was in control when he sent his own son into the world who died at the hands of sinful men. And God is in control right now in your sins and your failures. He is still the king who reigns. He's still the one in control. And even on Palm Sunday, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, go get the colt, untie it, it's going to be awesome. The people are going to be like, what are you doing? And just tell them the king needs it. And they're like, it's going to be fine. And they do it. And it works, and there really is a donkey. And like, it's this beautiful moment where Jesus reigns and everyone obeys him as they should. He's in complete control. But also, Jesus is worthy not just because he's in control, but also because he conquers. I mean, verse 5 is pretty clear. The lion has conquered. And look, we all want a king who can conquer. A strong and powerful king who can actually deal with evil in this world. Who's strong enough and power, powerful enough to handle it. Who will vanquish sin and death. The lion does that. And right now, if you're reading this passage, we're getting hyped. We're like, all right, come on, baby. And especially if you're the first original readers, the first century, you're, you're a Christian, you're being persecuted all across, all across the land. 
And you're like, all right, he's going to come and take care of these Romans. He's going to take care of these emperors who are persecuting us. They were actually being fed the real lions. And they're like, all right, now the real lion's here. But then the image changes. You notice what happens in verse 5 and 6? We got a lion. And then in verse 6, And between the throne and four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Not a lion. See, the image totally changes. You have this image of a lion with this bushy hair and large padded feet. Ferocious, conquering. Walking up to the throne room. His foot falls like thunder. And John blinks. He like gets something in his eye. He like gets it out. And then he looks up and now there's a lamb. This bloody white wool of a mess. Weak, standing before the throne room. Blood dripping from the wool. And it's the same image you get on Palm Sunday. Where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on coats. A red carpet of sorts. Riding on the back of a donkey. And we blink and a few chapters later in the Gospels... Jesus is now coming out of Jerusalem, not on the back of a donkey, but with the wood of a cross on his back, not walking on the carpets of people praising him, but on the carpet of his own blood of people mocking him. You see, Jesus does conquer this world, but he conquers through death. You see, Jesus is not worthy of our worship because he just reigns as a lion, but actually he reigns through renunciation as a lamb. He reigns through renunciation as a lamb, and that's the second thing we see, that Jesus reigns through renunciation. Um, To renounce something means to give up your right to something, to put it aside, and Jesus did that, right? I mean, the lion renounced his roar, and it says in Isaiah, he was silent like a sheep going to the slaughter. The lion renounced his bite, and he let whips and cords bite into his skin. The lion renounced violence and destroying others, and let, became vulnerable, and let others destroy him. The lion renounced his own glory by giving the chance for us to be back restored to, to be kings and queens. You see, the way that our King Jesus reigns is through renunciation. He, he was humiliated so that we could actually be exalted. Do you have any other king like that? Is there, is there anything else in your life, anybody else, anything you worship that does that for you, that dies for you, to build you up? Any employer, company, institution, nation, we all take things and use our authority to subjugate others, to get more power for ourselves. But the king who reigns over the whole world in complete control conquers by dying, by giving up control for us. And in verses 6 and 7, it says he's got seven horns and seven eyes. And the seven horns symbolize power in apocalyptic literature, in Revelation. He is all-powerful. Seven eyes symbolize knowing, knowledge, all knowledge. He's omnipotent and omni- omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing. And yet, and yet it's like a lamb. Like, he went as a weak, bloody mess, and he took the scroll. And the principle that this teaches us is that we conquer and reign in God's kingdom through renunciation. We actually conquer by dying for others. That's how God accomplished his saving action in the world. And the most amazing thing is, all heaven broke loose. I mean, after he takes that scroll, he walks up there and gets it. They bust out in a song. Now, I won't sing like I did a couple weeks ago. I think we all had enough of that. But it is amazing. Listen to the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Open its seals, for you were slain. You died. By your blood, though, you ransomed people. Every tribe, every language. Everyone gets a shot at this. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then John looked, and he looked around, and all of a sudden, these angels just popping up out of everywhere. 
numbering myriads, ten thousands of ten thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor. I mean, everyone, it's like a worship party to a lamb, to someone who died. And this is what I'm going to say. No one else is worthy of our worship. Nothing else is going to give our life for us. You know, your work will just rule over you. It, it, won't, it won't die for you, right? Our memories um, of the good old days won't, won't die for us. It'll just rule over us. Food and alcohol, anything we go to to try to cope with life is, is not going to... Uh, you know, die for us. Parenting, right? Education, social media, our bodies, all that stuff, right? Only Jesus is actually going to die for you, who give himself up for you. And so I think this means a couple things for us. Um, One is this. I think worshiping Jesus means that we have to see our worship as witness. We have to see our worship as witness. Um. That's what happens on Palm Sunday. Those people who are worshiping Jesus, they're saying, save us now. They're pointing everybody to Jesus. He's the one who can save them. And in verse 10 it says, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And anytime you hear the word kingdom and priest in the Bible, you automatically think mission. Oh, like this is not about us. This is about the world and people who don't know Jesus. And the worship of Jesus is to be a witness to him of a different kingdom. I mean, a priest is supposed to stand with one foot in heaven and one foot in earth, representing God to the people and people to God. I mean, a foot in paradise and the beauty uh, that is there, and and a a foot in the world of the brokenness and pain in this world. And that's what God calls us to do, to represent heaven to earth, to represent Jesus to a world that needs him. But it comes through renunciation. I mean, the kingdom we represent is a king who is full of justice and mercy and care for the sick and the fatherless. That's what he cares about. Priests always exist for the life of others. So our worship should not just be, you know, worshiping ourselves, but it should actually be a witness. Well, that'd be weird, but worshiping Jesus. But it should be worshiping Jesus for the sake of witnessing to others, pointing people to him. But also, I think this. I think it means from moving from a mindset of destroying others to dying for others. Now, that seems obvious at first thing. But um, we can often see people as competition. Come into a new church or a new employer, a new employee comes in, a new friend into the friend group, and automatically it's like, oh man, like they're like cooler than me, or they're funnier than me, or they're better looking than me. I never have that problem. No, I'm just kidding. We all have those problems. Um, that person has more hair than me, right? Um, and so rather than seeing people to die for, we see them as competition to conquer. But Jesus didn't do that. There's this crazy passage right after the triumphal entry. In John 12, where Jesus says, if a grain of wheat falls to the ground, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear fruit. Jesus uses the worst thing in this world, death, the most powerful thing the enemy has, and he bears fruit from it. He makes it flower out, produces more life and goodness in this world, like flowers that bloom after a harsh winter or a rainbow that cascades into the sky after a thunderstorm. And the reason that's true is because he doesn't just call us to die, he dies himself for us. He did that with his his own death. He produces fruit and life from his own death. That through his death he conquered the world. He came into a world that as a king that reigned, but he gave up control when he let Judas kiss him to his death. He gave up a war horse and sat on a donkey, and he let the wood of a cross sit on him instead. And this act of our king, I'm telling you, is worthy of our worship. And you all know this. 
A king who demands our worship not because he rules over us, but he reigns for us. And on Palm Sunday, it's this beautiful intrusion of this king. This humble king who comes into a broken world and he says, look, y'all, I am the true king. I'm what you want. Worship me. Sing for me because I love you and I die for you and my death will actually save you. None of those things that you worship will. So we've seen that if we worship things, what we worship will shape us. David Foster Wallace got it right. Revelation 5, that's what it says. It's important to know what we worship. And what we worship will shape us. And we worship Jesus who reigns. And he, he's worthy of our worship because he's in control. He conquered sin and death and darkness. But the way he did it was by dying for us. And he reigns through renunciation. And in doing so, he redeems us and he makes us priests. And we're the worship witnessing to, to him. And to follow him and not using our reign to destroy others, but actually to die for others. Because look, Jesus Christ uses his own death for us. And he flowers out his purposes into the world. And the seed of of God's purpose and redemptive act is his son. And the water is his own blood shed for you and me. I'll finish with this. Uh, This theme of of reigning through renunciation, of, of not destroying others, but dying for others. That's actually the life and the call of a Christian. And some side note, sometimes I wonder if we did more of that, we would be better witnesses to this Jesus of love and God and mercy and justice. If we would actually, in my own life, in our little relationships with our kids, with our neighbors, with our, our friendships, if we could actually love them as Jesus loved us. But of course, we need Jesus to do that, which is what we just talked about. But this theme is really well captured in Martin Luther King's life where his first call as a young Baptist minister was at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He really had no idea what awaited him. Where in a few years, he would lead the the largest nonviolent protest this country had ever seen. And as a leader of the movement, I mean, he got 30 to 40 malicious phone calls a day, often death threats daily. And one of these times, he had found out that his home had been bombed with his wife and his baby. And he rushes home, and fortunately, they were unharmed. And he's standing on his front porch looking out, to a group of people in his neighborhood divided by race, policemen standing there. It's on the verge of total chaos and violence. Tensions are rising. And what are you going to do in that moment? There are weapons. And this is what he says. He says, let's not panic. If you have weapons, take them home. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. We must love those who hate us, no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. And it says, onlooker said the police grew still, silent. Tears streamed down so many faces in the crowd and they hummed church songs that they knew. What happened in that moment? Well, Martin Luther King was appealing to, to the lamb that was slain. He was trying to say that if we worship a lion who conquered by becoming a lamb, who rode into Jerusalem praised as a king, but who rode in as a donkey, a king who conquered through death, redeemed us in love, and now reigns in heaven, this Jesus, this lion and the lamb is worthy of our worship and he's worthy worthy to follow. He's the one who opened the scrolls. 2,000 years ago, he's the one where everyone is singing Hosanna, and he's the one we worship today. Because he died on that cross, but he rose again for us. And his purposes are flowering out into the world right now. And that's the good news of Revelation 5, and that's why he's worthy of our worship. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, we thank you for Revelation 5. We thank you that you are a lion, a conquering lion, and also a lamb who is slain. God, it is so hard in this world to follow you in that. Forgive us for our many times we don't. And we know that in Jesus Christ, you accept us and love us, redeem us, and you call us to follow you. And when we fail, Lord, we know that you are still in control. And that's good news for us on this Palm Sunday. And I ask this in all of, of your name, the Lion and the Lamb. Amen.